It's time for Run, Bambi, Run. An Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. At first it just looks like a building. You get closer, and then all of a sudden you realize, you say, oh, shit, it's a prison. Chris Radish is talking about Teichita Women's Prison. That's where Lori Bimbenek was taken after she was convicted for murder. As soon as she got through the doors, she was booked, strip-searched, and shown to her cell. The speed of it all was mind-boggling. Days before, she'd been sitting at her parents' kitchen table playing Scrabble. And now, all the noise had died away. The flashbulbs, the shouting, and she was an inmate for life at only 23 years old. In her cell, Lori had hour after hour to sit and obsess about how she got here. None of the evidence made sense. The killer was a man in a brown wig, which Lori didn't own, in a green jogging suit, which Lori never had. But it wasn't evidence that she was convicted on. Ultimately, she believed that she'd been convicted because jurors believed she was a mean, materialistic woman, a woman who fit into all sorts of dangerous tropes. If I wore something a little on the conservative side, they would say I was trying to look like Little House on the Prairie. If I wore something, you know, that was a little more form-fitting, then, you know, I was the femme fatale, you know, trying to uh, uh, persuade the, the male jurors or something. In prison, Lori lost her core characteristics, her confidence and her swagger, her deep sense of morality, her fierce love of independence. Here's something she wrote long ago, I'll let Chris Radish read it. When I first got to Tai Chita, I was depressed, but I was also scared, freaked out. As a result, I became totally obsequious, fawningly servile, super obedient. Everything that made her so powerful on the outside got sucked out of her. I would sometimes cry because she started to be full of despair, and she contemplated suicide a couple times. In Lori's cell, there was a little speaker that piped in country and Western music, which she didn't like, but she played it because it felt like a connection to the outside world. Other than that, all she had were her letters. She was writing to everyone, especially her lawyer, Don Eisenberg, who she hoped had the key to getting her out. All the letters Lori wrote to Eisenberg are really sort of compelling in a pathetic sort of way. Like, she jokes with him, and then she's like, please save my life, and then I wish we could have drinks, and then, oh my God, am I going to die in here? Lori wrote to Eisenberg a lot, but she was receiving tons of mail, too. She was so famous, I mean, like, so infamous, that she didn't get a wheelbarrow of mail a day. It was more like a forklift. Letters from people who were just obsessed with her, with her case. There was a lot of National Enquirer-type stuff, like people saying they knew who the murderer really was, or they would kill for Lori, or sharing some crazy theory. But soon, she got two pieces of mail that changed everything. The first was from her husband, Fred, who was raising money for her case. For publicity, he'd even jogged from Milwaukee to Teichita. We're going to start a defense fund, and I'll never stop believing he had one brief phone call with his wife following her conviction, saying he had time to tell her he'd love her forever. Fred had come to visit a few times. It seemed like he was supporting her. But then, a few months later, he sent her a letter himself. And this letter told a different story. It was just a quintessential Dear John letter. Goodbye. 
I'm done, like three lines. She wouldn't see Fred again, and he left the police department too. I mean, have you ever heard of somebody breaking up a marriage with the lines, goodbye, good luck? No, that's pretty out there, but it's also Fred. It's his personality. So did it surprise me? No, and I think by the time she got the letter, it probably didn't surprise her that much either. Lori went numb, but then, after ripping up Fred's letters one by one, she got a second surprise in the U.S. mail. This one would set off her curiosity and her hunger for justice. It was a postcard from the friend who had betrayed her so spectacularly. It was from Judy Zess. This is Run Bambi Run, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. I'm Vanessa Gregoriatis, and this is episode six. So she's in prison. She was still, like, having a hard time understanding she's going to spend the rest of her days in prison. She gets a postcard from Judy Zess, and it said she was caught between a rock and a hard place. That was Timothy Meyer again, the reporter from the Shepherd Express. At first, Judy's postcard was confusing and cryptic. What did it mean that she was caught between a rock and a hard place? It sounded suspiciously close to being an apology. Like the meaning between the lines was, sorry I lied on the stand and got you thrown in jail, but, you know, I had no choice. And Lori would be right in that interpretation. Judy knew she screwed Lori. Finally, the star witness appeared. Bimbenek's old friend and roommate, who seemed to seal the verdict when she said yes, she had seen that green jogging suit. Obviously, Judy was lying about the green jogging suit. But why? Why would she lie? The most likely explanation is she betrayed Lori as a way to protect her new husband, who was in prison. You remember her husband, Mr. USA? It's easy to imagine that Mr. USA, who had been arrested for cocaine distribution, was in the mix here. He'd been arrested right before the murder, which just seems so weird. Was the murder somehow payback for his arrest? Was Judy covering up that he was really behind the killing? Chris Radish says Judy was probably just trying to help him get a deal. Judy was working with the cops. She was hoping if she cooperated and apparently lied about everything, that they would go easy on him and he could get released earlier. So basically, Judy's ass got on the stand and she said whatever the cops told her to say. She didn't care if it was true. She didn't care if she was under oath. And she definitely didn't care what it would mean for Lori. But her lie about the jogging suit and all her speculation about Lori's clothesline being used to tie Christine up, that's not the worst of it. Remember the wig? It was between the apartments right at the junction, and someone had, I guess, flushed a wig down there, a brown wig. Listen to this. It was Judy herself who planted the wig in the pipes. She just knocked on the neighbor's door one day, said, hey, can I use the bathroom? Stuck the wig down the toilet and left. And how do we know all this? Because the neighbor put in an affidavit about it. And because Judy admitted to most of it later after the damage was done. 
1983, Judy sat for a deposition with Don Eisenberg, Lori's lawyer, and she confessed to fabricating her testimony. I have a copy of her statement right here. Judy claims she was brainwashed by the police, that they pressured her. They'd played on her anxiety over something that had happened in her own life. She says that she had had a sister who was killed, but because no one ever testified, that case went unsolved. So Judy felt like she should take some action and testify against Lori, even if it meant just making some stuff up, I guess. This is a pretty weird rationale for screwing over your friend. Judy just couldn't do it. She couldn't hold up her end of the sisterhood chain, and not everybody can. She clearly was not a good friend. She was using Lori and double-crossed her, and she was all doing it for men. So when you write your books about female friendships, like, what do you do with somebody <laughs> like this? Well, we put them in a little box and throw them out the window. <laughs> for Chris, it's sort of surprising that Judy, a woman from Wisconsin, turned out to be so disloyal. There's something about people from Wisconsin. They're, they're just nice. They're friendly. They're open. But are they truly nice, or are they just nice? Well, there's always an asshole, no matter where you go. But the nice people in Wisconsin all act the same way. But when you get to know them, then are they still nice through and through? Unless they're assholes. <laughs> okay. As I leaf through Judy's deposition, I realized there was one thing missing. She never says who killed Christine Schultz, which seems like something she might know. To try to get more information about that, Chris and I went back to her garage, the one where she stored all those gray plastic bins from Target. These are the boxes that had the letters and the affidavits and the news clippings about Lori Bembenek, some of them like 40 years old. The paper was yellowed, but definitely readable. Chris and I rooted around in those boxes until she found what she was looking for. It was a long, official statement that never came up at the trial. It was from a known criminal, a convicted thug. His name is Frederick Hornberger. So here's the crazy letter that Hornberger wrote. And it's huge. It's like page after page. Uh, Handwritten. Handwritten. Like a very... Nice penmanship, very nice looping penmanship. Yeah, notarized. Now stay with me. This is going to get a little complicated. But Frederick Hornberger's statement spills the beans on all sorts of things. Who is this guy? Well, it turns out that everyone on the scene knew exactly who he was. Here's George Marks again from Georgie's Pub and Grub. Everybody hung around my bar. It was a big melting pot from doctors, attorneys, judges. Uh, you know, the the best of the best to the worst of the worst. Everybody knew who the good guys was and who the bad guys were. Right, right, right. Yeah. Good guys mixing with bad guys. I mean, that's what makes a fun bar, right? Frederick Hornberger was definitely one of the bad guys. George Marks had known him since grade school. Fred Hornberger was older than me. He had a younger brother that was in the same grade as me. The first guy he ever shot was in 1972 in a bar that my dad owned at the time. Fortunately, I wasn't there that night. <laughs> uh, a bunch of guys went after him inside the bar. He came out with a gun and killed one guy and shot another guy and shot at another guy. Yeah, Hornberger went to prison. But as soon as he got out, he was back at Georgie's Pub and Grub. And of course, you know, he hung around in all the same places we all did. They don't call it small walkie for nothing. And let's not forget, George Marks was all buddy-buddy with Fred Schultz at the time. 
As you'll recall from a couple episodes ago, they went bar hopping together. Pheasant hunting. So it stands to reason that Fred and Hornberger might know each other, too. Listen to what George has to say about that. Well, uh, Fred Hornberger was a pretty good artist. and I guess he learned that in jail. I know he learned it in jail. He was able to paint on clear glass sheets and make it look like uh, a lead glass type things. And Fred Schultz was a great carpenter. So what I did is paid him, you know, to do it. And Fred Schultz built the frames and Fred Hornberger painted the glass. Uh, yeah. That, you know, just basic uh, carpentry work. Fred, the cop who had built that German chalet on Ramsey Avenue with his own two hands, and Hornberger, the career criminal, they knew each other. In case this isn't convoluted enough yet, can we just go back to Judy's ass for a second? In his epic statement, Hornberger says not only did he know Judy's ass, he'd also had sex with her. Because he went over to the house and ended up in bed with her and in the shower with her and who knows where else. He also overheard her talking on the phone, and he learned that Judy had quite the tangled knot of allegiances. She was also sleeping with the detective on Lori's case. Remember the big, creepy, Marvel villain-like cop who'd arrested Lori? Yeah, Judy's having sex with him, too. She's kind of the femme fatale in all this. Mm -hmm. She... Wow. She lied on Stan. She was involved with Hornberger, and she was sleeping with one of the lead detectives. So, wow. But ultimately, the continuing promiscuity of the Milwaukee Police Department doesn't mean as much as the next thing I'm going to tell you about. Now listen very carefully. Frederick Hornberger, this random thug, not only slept with Judy's ass, right after the Christine Schultz murder... He also robbed her. Yes, Judy was dating cops and robbers at the same time. Supposedly, Hornbreaker was looking for $25,000 worth of cocaine that Mr. USA had stashed at Judy's apartment. But that's not the important part. The important part is how Hornberger and his two accomplices did the robbery. Here's what happened. One night, when Judy was on her way home, she was grabbed from behind, tied up, and had a bandana stuck in her mouth. Sound familiar? Yeah, this was another home invasion robbery. And Hornberger's team had a pretty specific M.O. He was known to commit robberies in disguise. Part of that disguise? He used a wig. And a report says that he also had a green army jacket or a green jogging suit. But wait, there's more. When detectives investigated the break-in at Judy Sess's place, they found that the thief had used a snub-nosed 38 to threaten Judy, held it right up against her skin, just the way the killer did with Christine Schultz. Also, and this is really weird, somebody had messed with a stereo and unplugged the speakers, just like at Christine Schultz's house. In this case, they not only unplugged the cords, but they stole the speakers, too. Okay, if you're thinking... Why wasn't Frederick Hornberger the main number one suspect in Christine Schultz's murder? Well, me too. That's all I'm thinking. Like, what the hell? I'm like, well, this seems pretty believable. <laughs> I remember getting this letter and going, Are you, I, I, I was like, if it was true, it, it totally made sense. All this blew Lori's mind, too. There was so much she wanted to know about this guy Hornberger. But he was in prison. 
for the robbery at Judy's place. He'd gone down for that. There were rumors flying around that he'd even bragged about killing Christine to guys on the inside, but he never admitted to it on the record. I also had evidence given to me from his family (laughs) who contacted me and said they had a letter that he had smuggled out of prison behind a picture that he had drawn. And the letter was like, I didn't do it. I know this and that. They wouldn't let me keep the letter. They kind of read it and kept it. But obviously, these people know and knew something. Like most people who could potentially solve this mystery once and for all, Frederick Hornberger is conveniently dead. After he got out of prison for the Judy's ass robbery in 1991, he was in the middle of a robbery at a bakery when the cops showed up. When he realized he was trapped, he said that he had something to say. Here's George Marks again. Before he shot himself, he had taken some hostages. When he was in his negotiations with the coppers, he swore that he never killed, uh, what's her name? It was kind of like a deathbed uh, confession. But I, once again, gee, I, I don't know. Supposedly, his last words were, I had nothing to do with the murder. So that's weird. Hornberger died that day of a gunshot wound. The cops wrote it up as suicide. Like I said, convenient. So Lori had an idea of who might have killed Christine Schultz, who actually pulled the trigger. But Lori didn't know exactly why Christine was killed until help arrived. Okay, yes, I am about to introduce you to another character who is also dead. This podcast is a real seance, huh? So this guy, Ira Robbins, was a sort of pro-freelance detective who became fixated on figuring out not only who had killed Christine Schultz, but why. And he hated the Milwaukee cops as much as Lori did. Almost every citizen I spoke with believed she was not guilty. And almost every police officer that tried to intimidate me into changing my opinion got in my face and told me, she's guilty. Chris Radish met Ira in the 80s. He was a big, strong, tall guy who walked into a room and immediately looked around to see who he could bite first. Ira Robbins had been a Wauwatosa cop in the 60s and 70s. He was Jewish, and he said he left the force in disgust over anti-Semitism. So, in a way, he and Lori were kindred spirits. He had been discriminated against as a police officer, filed a discrimination suit, won it. He found out that the same thing had happened to Lori. That was it for him. He was like, I'm, I'm on this. He did have a keen sense of justice. Now he was a private eye, and he wanted to be Lori's private eye. I think he was so single-minded about finding the real murder of Christine Schultz that the rest of his life just literally fell away. He was kind of living hand-to-mouth, and... He had this car. I called it a pimp mobile. Because I worked the high crime districts conducting criminal defense investigations, I drove an older car that blended into the area. I said, where the hell did you get this car? He goes, well, I actually got it from a pimp. I did some work for this guy, and he didn't have any money either, so he gave me this car. When Chris Radish was looking into Lori's case with Ira, a lot of stuff happened in that car. One time, he told her to conceal herself in his trunk. I would be hanging out with this crazy guy, lying in the back of a trunk, holding it down on the way to some place to eat lunch and and get secret files. The whole thing was absolutely ludicrous, but it was actually kind of fun. It was probably safer in the trunk than it was riding in the car. (laughs) That's 
true. <laughs> we ended up having lunch and exchanging documents and stuff. And I'm like, why did I have to get in the trunk again? Chris took Ira seriously, though. And Timothy Meyer did, too. When I met Ira Robbins in the late 80s, and he was trying to get anybody to listen to the story. Remember, Timothy Meyer was an alternative news journalist. The city disliked our paper so much that they passed legislation that said you could not have a free newspaper in Milwaukee. We were the only free paper out there, so they just didn't. They just said it was littering the streets, and they and so they were trying to shut us down. So our publisher decided that well, we'll put the boxes out there, and you could put a quarter in the box to get the paper. But every box, he said, will be broken, so you get your quarter back. When Timothy sat down with Ira, he was impressed. He came to our office and. I agreed to take a look at the Ben Benick story when no one else was looking at it. I can walk today into a pub and and point out undercover cops based on things Ira told me to look at. Ira told Timothy, and really anyone who would listen, that he knew why Christine was killed. It was a botched robbery. The motive behind this case had to do with two things. Two possibilities, he means. First, remember how on the night of the murder there was something going on in Christine's den. This was the music room that the kids weren't supposed to go into. There was a box in there that was outside of the safe. And it was usually inside the safe. Now, the question of whether the safe had been tampered with was always a rumor. But then something happened that made it feel more real. Out of the blue, Lori's little old parents got a phone call. Remember them? Her dad, who used to be a cop. And her mom, a homemaker, who was intense. She was very, what I call, he's got her shorts on a little too tight. So Lori's dad says he got a call from Stu Honick, Christine's boyfriend and Fred's sworn enemy. And her dad says Stu Honick told him there was a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of drugs sitting in the Ramsey Avenue house on the night of the murder. That's what the robbers were looking for. It might have been Mr. USA's coke, or it could have been narcotics seized in a raid. Who knows? But that's what they were after. According to Stu Honick, hundreds of thousands of dollars of drugs. Now, Stu later said he didn't say this, and the Milwaukee prosecutors said Stu was probably drunk when he said it anyway. But this would answer a lot of questions. I do remember somebody saying how, once the furniture was cleared out, how Honick was really anxious to find out what happened to the potted plants that Christine had in the house it was known that drug-sniffing dogs couldn't detect drugs if they were buried in the ground. And so he, for some, he, he was anxious to find those potted plants, which seems like a very odd thing to remember your ex-girlfriend by. Now, the second possible motivation for Christine's murder, to Ira's mind, even though it might sound a little nutty, pointed straight at the police department. Christine might have had, somewhere in her house, a photo album, and it was chock full of those infamous naked tracks photos. So maybe the intruders were trying to get their hands on those on the orders of someone who really wanted them back. In fact, Ira had a whole bunch of these prints. We got these photos from a source, the gold mine of photographs that could help Ben Benick. Because these photographs were showing uh, criminal activity and nudity and all kinds of sexual lewdness, um, So we went to a copy place to get them copied. We were very concerned that we would never see these photographs again. It turned out okay. If there was some kind of conspiracy going on, the Kinko's guy wasn't in on it. Though Timothy's car did get messed up. I went to the police station to report 
the vandalism of my car. And I remember asking to fill out a report. And they said, do you know who did it? I said, yeah, I believe you guys did it. And, and then they just kicked me out and ripped up the report and wouldn't do anything about it. Eventually, Timothy and Ira Robbins got ahead of steam about all this. A prosecutor, who I called at the time, was investigating the case. And he told me that there was a lot of political pressure for him to end the case, to not find anything wrong, and to walk away. And he felt that his life was being threatened as well. The prosecutor didn't go public, and ultimately, nothing happened. I was uh, frustrated, depressed. This woman's life totally destroyed. Nobody really knew who she was or the type of person she was. A person who stood out for women's rights and really was a whistleblower in the department. I often tell people that she was standing up for women's rights way before a Me Too movement came. And I felt the things that she was doing was honorable. Now, there was something that came out of this batch of photos. This photo shows a good-looking blonde guy, big pecs with blue eyes, and he's buck naked. It's Fred Schultz. I was at a bar with Chris Radish a while ago, and she described this photo to me. Here's a police officer, right? Somebody who's supposed to be protecting the city and being moral and upstanding, and there he is standing naked on a picnic table in public, and you're like, oh, wow. (laughs) So he had his arm flexed like Mr. America looking at it, and it looked like he was about ready to kiss himself. I've seen the photo. He's posing like a Greek Adonis. She marries this older man on a whim, I think, and she finds out she doesn't really know him. So yeah, she was in way over her head. She got quite a load when she married him. So there's a lot of new info about Fred. The naked photos, the convict acquaintances, everything else. So you might be thinking, what exactly is going on with this guy? I talked about him with Don Eisenberg, Lori's lawyer. Do you feel like Fred was involved in this? murder? Do you think the evidence shows that he was at all involved? Or do you think after these years that it was still Lori herself? Absolutely not. I never thought that Fred was involved at all. Mm. Nor do I know. Even though he had the alibi, why would Lori want to do this so badly by herself? Do you know what I mean? Like, she just got him married to him. Do you think it was the two of them? I have no idea because she... To me, she said she never did it. So why would she want to do it? I have no clue. Because she told me, and I believed her, that she never did it. Did you feel any pressure from Fred to handle the case in a certain way? Absolutely not. Fred was always a gentleman, and never once did he say, hey, why didn't you do this, or why did you do that? No, no problem with Fred at all. And so was there any conflict of interest in representing Lori because of your relationship with Fred? No, my relationship with Fred wasn't a separate relationship. It was also always a twosome. It was all, they were always together. I never met with him separate, nah, nothing there at all. When we sat down together, it was us together. Us together, but Lori and Fred weren't together anymore. I want to share one other thing with you. Fred's father was also interviewed by the cops about the murder. And he said he had no idea who did it. 
but he did say that he got a series of weird calls just beforehand. In a police report, he says that they were from an unidentified male who said, you fucking son of a bitch, I'm going to get even with you. But Fred Sr. figured the threats must have been aimed at his son, like it was a wrong number. In the final call, he said, do you know who you're calling? I live in Pewaukee. The detectives installed a tap on his phone, but the caller never phoned again, which could mean that the murder was someone trying to get back at Fred for something. And yet, if you wanted to mess with someone, why kill his ex-wife? I don't know. It seemed like every time you turned over a rock in Lori's case, there were more connections and theories just wriggling around on the ground. Still, as hard as Lori worked when she was at Teachita to clear her name, with Ira Robbins on the outside rolling around in his pimp mobile and journalists like Chris Radish and Timothy Meyer digging away on her behalf, she just wasn't getting anywhere. They were raising real questions about the case, and the legal system ignored them. Every time Lori tried to appeal, she was denied, and it just didn't make sense. Here's one, yet another letter. This one to a judge. Please, please have the courage to right this wrong. As friends and eventually my own husband betrayed me and emotionally tore me limb to limb, as people in power took away my freedom with such defiant ease, I believe in the criminal justice system. But Lori wouldn't feel this way, believe in the criminal justice system, the whole way through her imprisonment. She was definitely losing faith. She started becoming a prison reform activist and a Marxist. She began to see herself as a character from George Orwell. Winston, from 1984, who's once a part of a repressive government system, but has revolutionary dreams. The years ticked by, over eight years. Eight years of her life, just gone. The forklift of letters didn't keep coming the whole time. She became less famous. People forgot about her. Like all inmates, things got very quiet. But she tried to make the best of it, to be a stand-up person. She started a prison newspaper by the sassy name Inmate Output. She hated the food in the prison, very unhealthy. So she collected aluminum cans to raise money for a salad bar. She started a class action suit, organized prisoners, claimed the prison was disgustingly overcrowded. That was all magnificent work. She did a lot for women. And she was pretty much considered a hero by a lot of the women who were in prison. She went to bat for a lot of them. It's interesting to to think about how she went in there and she was this young, naive, beautiful woman and then really changed or grew. Yet Lori could not convince a court to give her an appeal. She was stonewalled at every turn. All the evidence that she'd gathered, and Ira had gathered, and she still couldn't convince anyone that she'd been done dirty. Like, she was absolutely filthy from all the crap that they'd thrown at her. As Lori's third appeal came up, she was out of hope. And then, in this women's prison, she met a man. So she spotted him across the room. He walked in tall, mustache, dark hair, And she kept watching him going, wow, he's kind of cute. So when visiting was over, she found the sister, said, hey, your brother's cute. And she goes, oh, well, he's single. He's divorced and he has three kids, but he's single. Would you like me to ask him if he wants to write to you? And she goes, sure. So they started corresponding. 
Nick Gugliotto was a Milwaukee guy. His dad owned a tavern with a gimmick. He had dancing ducks in the window. They were jumping because there was a hot plate under their feet. He got into a lot of trouble with the Humane Society for that. Nick was emotionally vulnerable and also had a small cocaine problem. He'd just been divorced from his wife, who he said was the only woman he had ever slept with in his life. And now he'd walked into a Techita waiting room to visit his sister. She was in for writing bad checks. Lori, desperate as she was, noticed him right away. Okay, this is going to be an actor reading from Nick Gugliotto's memoir. I was looking for something simply platonic, and I didn't think there was anything that was going to be more platonic than this type of relationship. Yeah, well, I'm not sure Lori was thinking the same way. I knew she had met him. We had talked about it. I knew that she was craving sex. Things got romantic fast. She called him her Italian stallion. She ordered crotchless panties in the mail. Then she cut out the pockets of her jail shorts and let him slip his hands in. She'd cover her nipples with lipstick and press them against stationery and send him that. It was as torrid as it could be, given the circumstances. And within six months, he asked her to marry him. And she said yes. But then there was real devastation. She lost her third and final appeal. The next time the Italian stallion showed up, Lori was crying, these big, heaving sobs. He felt terrible, and he said, How can we get you out of here? And her head whipped up, and her curls bounced with the movement. You do that for me? You'd help me escape? And I swallowed as my chest constricted, but I didn't even think about it. Well, yeah. A small mouse-like strangled sound escaped her throat, and her eyes darted right to left, a sign the wheels in her brain were churning. Then she said something really weird. You need to go see my parents. It seemed like Lori had been thinking about the jailbreak for a while. I was so desperate that even one night of freedom to me was worth it. Even one, you know, even one night. Next time on Run, Bambi, Run. She wished that she had chosen a real partner, but there were kind of slim pickings in the lobby at Tai Chita. Gugliotto was not a Rhodes Scholar, right? Police say they strongly suspect the couple had outside help. Call it a Bambi network. Mrs. Bambenek and her husband have denied all along they've had any contact with their daughter. You might know where they are right now. They're America's most wanted. Run Baby Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley Ann Krigbaum is our managing producer. Our researcher is Alex Yablon and our archivist is Megan Shuve. Field production by Emily Files. Sam Winch read from Nick Gugliotto's memoir. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Special thanks to executive producer Kyle Long, Ewen Lai Tremuin, and to Campside's operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. And finally, thanks so much to Chris Radish, who wrote the book Run Bambi Run. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>